This message was recorded during a conference for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, good to see all of you. There we go. I'm on. Am I on? Yes. yes. Okay. How to follow a Clash of Clans competition with preaching. I don't quite know how to do that. Um, Walt was just telling me that's, that's going to be a challenge for you, buddy. That's going to be a little bit of a challenge. But let, me, let me just first say I, I, I love being here with you guys. I, I love being here last year. I've been looking forward to it. Uh, Bill and the guys were very kind almost immediately when I got home to say, hey, would you, could you come back next year? And pretty quickly I was able to say yes. Very grateful to be with you, able to greet you from Texas. It's wonderful to be here in the cool weather. Um, it's, it's really delightful to step off the plane and feel like, ah, oh, fall, this is the way it should be. Um, so I'm excited to be with you guys, and I am excited especially because of what Mike just shared, because I believe that as exciting as these clashes are, um, there, there is something more exciting, uh, and that is the power of God's Word, transforming our hearts, teaching us about Himself. Uh, we believe as a family of churches, and I know you share the same belief with me, That God's word is the greatest power at work on earth. It It is more powerful than any national power, any other personal ambition. It 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 contains power by the Holy Spirit to transform. And I am praying that what would happen the next 48 hours is that some of you, all of you, all of us would be changed by God's word. I'm praying that would be the case. So if you would with me, just let's just take a moment and pray for this message and for the coming messages that God would do what he promises to do in his word. Lord, we are grateful for fun and we're confident that you enjoy fun because of the humor that's present in creation and even in your word. But Lord, even more than fun, we are here to meet with you in your word. And Lord, I pray that you would attend the preaching of your word with power, with Holy Spirit power, and that people here, young and old alike, young men, young women, dads, moms, friends, would encounter your presence in this room as we open up your word. Lord, begin that tonight. Bless this message. Bless the future messages. Lord, open our hearts to be humble and receive your word with enthusiasm and humility and faith, ready to change as you speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We can look at a brief and very familiar, I'm sure, very familiar passage this evening. But before I look at the passage, I want to introduce something of the theme uh, of our set of messages we're going to be going through over the next couple of days. Um, the theme could be phrased as a question, who are you? Who are you? Or to use a single word, identity. Who are you? And I want you to pause for just a moment before we get into this text and these series of messages To consider that question, who are you? Who do you think you are? And are those the same thing? Is what you think about yourself, what I think about myself, my self-definition, the same thing as what I am? Because as, as Mike just said, we live in a world, and that's always been true in this world, 
where lots of people are telling us, and Walt Disney and company foremost, that you can decide who you are and no one else should tell you otherwise. We live in a world, and especially right now, where lots of voices are telling us that you can define yourself, that who are you is a question that only you can answer, that no one else can answer, and that if anybody else tries, they're being oppressive and evil. And it might be an answer that changes over the course of your lifetime. You you might decide to be one person right now and somebody else later on. But I want to give you an analogy about the danger of thinking that you can define yourself. Last year, if you were here last year, we talked about rats. If you remember, if you weren't here, you can go back and listen to that message. Uh, Tonight I want to talk to you about trains, okay? Now, there's close to my house this huge train track, and massive trains go by on a regular basis, and they blow the whistle at 4 in the morning and wake us up, and it's delightful. But if you've ever seen a a huge train carrying tons of weight, you know all trains basically work with the same operation, right? There's two rails. I want you to have that in your mind. Two rails of a train. Except in this case, there's, there's people that are building the track, right, for the first time. And one rail has been set. It's cemented in place all the way down to the end of the line. It's it's there. It's set. It is where it's supposed to be. And they're laying the other rail to match the first rail. Now, I want you to have in your mind, have in your mind as we go through these messages, that that first rail is what God says about you. What is true about you according to God. What is actually who you are according to God's definition. And the other rail is what you think about yourself. Okay, so we got one rail and it's set in place. It's immovable, it's unchanging. It's what God says about you. Who you are, if I can put it this way, has already been decided at the most fundamental level. And, and what I just said to you is extremely countercultural. But I'm going to try to prove it based on God's word. Who you are is that first real. It's been decided. But what I want to try to get at is it's possible for people to try to move the other rail, what they think about themselves, far away from what God says about them. What's supposed to happen is those are supposed to line up perfectly. Otherwise, the train, in this case, our life, goes off the track. And there's a great wreck. Just put it this way, if you can, in your mind. If what you think about yourself doesn't line up with what God says is true about you, your life is headed for disaster. If what you think about yourself, that's the one rail we're working on, doesn't line up exactly with what God says about you, it'd be like a train that's going to go off the tracks. It's supposed to line up exactly It's supposed to be exactly parallel, what God says about us and what we think about who we are. In other words, one way to answer the question is, who am I? Whatever God says I am. Who am I? Whatever God says I am. That's how I know my life is headed in the right direction. 
And there's no better place to begin answering that question than in Genesis 1. There's, there's no more foundational identity or foundational answer to the question, who am I, than in Genesis chapter 1. So I want to look at just a couple of verses there. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, the most foundational word that we could supply in answer to that question is the word created. Who am I? Created. I'll give you one word for each of these sessions. Created. Who am I? Created. Let's begin reading God's word in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and following. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Made by God. Who are you? Made by God. Now, I'm not going to walk through this first the way we normally would on a Sunday, taking one section at a time normally, but I, I do want to make five observations that this verse speaks to us that define that part of who we are, that speak to this identity that we have as, as created beings. Young men, young women, old men, old women, created by God, okay? Just five observations. What does this passage say that establishes that first rail that is true? What, what does the creation of men and women that's right here introduced in Genesis 1.26, what does it do? What is it supposed to do in us or make us think about? Well, the first thing it does is it magnifies God. Okay, that's point number one. The first thing this passage does is it magnifies God. The creation of man glorifies God. So before we talk about what it says about us, this passage, and Genesis chapter 1 in general, and all of the Bible, is firstly about God. And you can tell that because it starts with God. It's not firstly about you and me. It's firstly about God. What does the creation of mankind do? It magnifies God. God and God alone gets glory for the creation of men and women. Notice there in your Bibles. Then God said... And that's just the last in a long stretch of times when Genesis 1 says, and God said. If you go back up with your eyes, look down at your Bibles, notice it says there again in 24, and again in verse 20, and again in verse 14, and again in verse 11, and again in verse 9, and again in verse 6, and again in verse 3, God said. So creation that reaches its pinnacle in the creation of men and women is all about God's glory. God says and stuff happens. God speaks, and powerful things begin to take place. God says, if I can use the analogy, and that rail begins to be laid of truth. It's cemented in place. It will never be moved. When God says, reality is established. God speaks, have this in your mind, that rail line is sent from the beginning to the end. It's cemented in place. God has spoken. Let us make man in our image. So the first thing creation does, the creation of mankind, is it glorifies God. And, and God didn't just 
sort of get lucky with the creation of men and women. It wasn't like Edison where he was working on random stuff and it was like out popped a man. Oh, that works. No, no, that's not what Genesis 1 says. It says he created everything and then he saved his greatest creation for the last when he made men and women. So God created everything all for his glory. And not only did God create the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, but he made them in such a way that Every other man and woman is also made by God. We, we get that very clearly if you read Psalm 139 when David's talking about his own creation. Many, many, many years later. It's not like God created Adam and Eve and then they in their own power and strength can raise up people out of the dust and just emerge as here's a son and there's a daughter and so forth. No, no. God creates each person. So each person here is made by God. If you had a tag on the inside of your head with a made by place on it, it would say made by God. Made by God. You have been made by God. Each one of you were woven together like David says. God handmade you, if I can use that phrase. You weren't factory made. God made you. God handmade each of you. He handmade it with his own power and spirit. He, he made you himself personally. No angel made you. No other person made you. No factory made you. No accidental result of biological accidents made you. God himself the same God who made Pluto and made some distant star we haven't heard about yet because the light hasn't reached us, that God made you. Do me a favor. Just put your hand on your hand right now. Just clasp it together. That hand that you're holding, God made. God made it. God made your brain. God made all of your body. God made the way you think and your ability to feel and see and hear. God made all of those things and it magnifies God. So the first thing creation does is it magnifies God. All that we are, all that we are that's good was created by God. We did not create it ourselves. It was created by God. Anthony Hokema says it this way, all views of man that do not take as their starting point in the doctrine of creation, and that therefore look upon him, man, as an autonomous being who can arrive at what is true and right, wholly apart from God or from God's revelation in Scripture, are to be rejected as false. In other words, if you don't start with this, made by God, anywhere you go from there is going to be the wrong direction. If you don't line up that rail with that fundamental identity, I've been made by God. When my kids are really little, that was one of the first questions I asked to train them about the truth. I, I would ask them a bunch of questions, and the first one I would ask is, who made you? And they knew they were supposed to answer, God made me. Who made you? God made me. And we can say that till we're 90 years old. Who made you? God made me. Made by God for God's Glory. So the first thing it does is it magnifies God. And one more small point under this point of magnifies God, because we might not get this, because we're used to making stuff that you can then sell or give away, but God has no one to give anything to, and he doesn't need any money. So in the Bible, when someone is said to be made by God, the assumption throughout Scripture is that God still owns that thing. He didn't have to borrow anything to build it, he doesn't have anybody he could sell it to. He doesn't need any money for the exchange. So everything God makes, he keeps. 
He keeps it all. It's exactly what Psalm 24 says. It says, the earth is the Lord's. It belongs to him. The, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Here's the connection I'm making. All the things that God makes, he still owns. And since he made everything, he owns everything. So when we say that creation magnifies God, it magnifies him that he can make it out of nothing. It also magnifies him in that everything that is, God owns. Take a look around you. God owns this building. God owns you. God owns me. I belong to God. As a creature, I belong to God. And even when you become a Christian, so important is this identity that the very nature of salvation recommunicated it. Jesus said in John chapter 3, he said, listen, to be a Christian, you have to be recreated. You're created as a creature. You have to be recreated as a Christian or else you can't be a Christian. So then you're owned by God twice as a creature and as a Christian because you've been created twice as a creature and as a Christian. So very fundamentally, you cannot know who you are unless you know God made me. Stick it in your mind. And think about 9,000 Disney songs that ask the question, who are you? And think about how weird this answer would be, made by God. Who are you, island girl, looking for a future and so troubled by your parents and wondering what your future is going to be? How weird would it be? I'm made by God. He decides. Go on a journey and find your future and wonder and find all the great questions to which there are no answers other than what you provide. No, no, God made me. God made you. And the first thing it says is that creation magnifies God. Now we'll move the rest of these quickly. It magnifies God, this passage. The second thing it does is it humbles us. It humbles us. And I don't mean it humbles us because we're sinners. We'll get to that in a minute. I mean it humbles us because we're creatures. It humbles us because we're creatures. To be created is to have your very existence completely dependent on someone else. It's to have your existence, the fact that you are, is entirely because God made you. It has nothing to do with you. I didn't make myself, and you didn't make yourself. You exist. You are here listening to me because God made you. We, we, we are literally, the, the Lord expands on what it meant that he made Adam in, in the next chapter. We'll get to that more tomorrow. When he says, I, I took a, a lump of dust that I had made, and I formed it into a man, and then I breathed into it so that he would be alive. That's how man was made, Right? Now, I don't know if you remember, because it's been a long time for a lot of you, working with Play-Doh. Do you remember Play-Doh when you were like ages ago, decades for most of you, right? But you worked with Play-Doh, right? Now, I'm terrible at anything to do with working with my hands. So when I work with Play-Doh, what it was when I started and what it was when I ended are pretty much indistinguishable. <laughs> it's pretty much the same thing. God, however, starts with Play-Doh and makes a human being. You are Plato. Put that in your head. You are Plato. You are dust. You're actually worse than Plato because you don't even, you mean, you're dirt, okay? You're 
dirt, your Play-Doh that God turned into something that could think and feel and see and hear and smell and live forever. Your Play-Doh made alive by God. So one thing that this doctrine, when you just look at these opening words, then God said, let us make, just take those words and stamp them on your heart. Let us make. I'm made. I'm not self-made. I'm not accidentally evolved. I'm made. I am made. I'm Play-Doh made. It humbles us. So, young teenage guy, and I was one of you at one point, when you're looking in the mirror and thinking, manly physique is starting to look good on me. <laughs> Say this in your head. I'm Play-Doh. I'm Play-Doh. Anything that looks anything useful at all, God made. Young lady, when you're looking at yourself in the mirror and trying to get ready for the day and wondering whether this shade or that shade looks better and so forth, you're Play-Doh that God made. You're Play-Doh. It humbles us. It humbles us. We tend to forget this. We look in the mirror and think, looking good today. Or I wish I was looking good today. Or something like that, right? When we should be thinking, I'm, I'm Play-Doh. I'm Play-Doh made by God. Anything good, God made. It humbles us. It humbles us and keeps us from thinking that we in ourselves are impressive. I would imagine that many, many, many evils in the world would have been stopped if people were to remember, I'm made, and that should humble me. It humbles us. Third thing it does, it honors us. Look down at your Bibles. It says, then God said, let us make man. There's us being humbled. And here's the surprising honor. In our image, after our likeness. Now, there's something surprising. There's something surprising. God took as the model for what he was going to make out of Plato himself. God took as the model for what he was going to make out of Plato himself. And he decided this Plato was going to be a representation of God on the earth. It was going to be a, a kind of miniature of God on the earth so that they could see something much lesser, but something of what God is like. And that is an incredible honor for Plato. Plato does not deserve to look like God. And let me say it again. You are dirt. I am dirt. And somehow God made you, not just in any kind of shape or form, which would have been an honor, but in a way that looks like him. That is an incredible honor. Put that in that cemented rail. God established from the very beginning, I'm going to make them, which will mean they should be humbled, and I'm going to make them look like me, which means they should be incredibly honored. And they're not going to look like me in some physical sense, God is spirit. That's not what it means. It means that our capacity and our soul and our ability to speak and think and reason and even to relate to God in a personal relationship, that we have something of a reflection of God and not only our relationship with God, but our relationship to creation because he goes on to say, you're going to rule over, kind of representing me over the rest of this creation. So a lion is not the king of beasts. 
right? And an ant is not the king of beasts, as impressive as they are in what they do. No, people rule over in God's stead over this world. Adam, in particular, given a unique role to rule over this world. And so we have this privilege of relating to God as someone that is like him in some way and relating to the world as someone that is like God in some way. So this this initial rail, what does it do? It humbles us, but it also honors us. We've been commissioned to represent God. In other words, when the creation looks at a human being, man or woman, they're to see something that reminds them of God. So when you look in the mirror every day and you think about yourself, here's a fundamental identity. Who am I? Someone who is supposed to remind people of God. Who am I? Who are you? Whether you're 12 years old or 72 year old, who are you? You're supposed to remind people. You're supposed to look a little bit like God. You can't be God. You could never. Who could possibly be God? But you're supposed to remind them of God. And the way an image in a mirror would would reflect the reality or a a model would look something. I, I know what that looks like in its capacity to have wisdom and to love and to be kind and to produce things. What once wasn't in some ways now is. A man can be like God in that way. A woman can be like God. He comes to a field where there isn't a house. And after he's done in a couple of years, there is a house. And that's not like God. God comes to nothing and turns it into a universe. But in a a similar way, he can take what is kind of like nothing and he can build it and produce it and cause it to be fruitful and to multiply and be, be more productive than it was before he was there in a way that's a blessing to the world. He, he, he represents God. He looks in a little bit, little way, like God. We've been commissioned to represent God. It honors us. It honors us. That is the definition of who you are. I, I am created, and that means I've been honored with the commission of representing God. Anthony Hokema says it this way, to be a human being in the truest sense, therefore, means to love God above all, to trust him and obey him, to pray to him and to thank him. Since man's relatedness to God is his primary relationship, all of his life is to be lived coram deo before the face of God. Man is bound to God as a fish is bound to water. When a fish seeks to be free from water, it loses both its freedom and its life. Now, we're used to thinking about that in terms of our dependence on God, and we should. I want to apply that to our way we think about our identity. If you try to separate who you are from being called to represent God, you're pulling your train track away from who you really are. You can't change the fact that you were called to represent God. That is cemented in place. Every one of you. Every one of you was called. You were made. God wove you together. He gave you a life. And you have an unchangeable calling and purpose and identity. Who are you? Called to represent God. Called to reflect God. 
called to look like God in his character and wisdom and love and truthfulness, called to be like God in his ability to provide and bless those around him, called to be an image bearer of God. You are called to that. That is cemented in place. That will never move until you die. Who are you? Someone who's called to reflect God. Now, it is possible to try to move that other train track, and that's what people do every day. Who am I? Called to reflect my true self, whatever that is. Called to be independent. Called to pursue my dreams. Called to be expressive. Called to feel various experiences. Called to define myself. That doesn't change who we really are, but man, it can make the train go off the tracks and crash. Every time we try to pull who we think we are away from who God has called us, the train derails, and there's a huge crash of life. It was made to work one way. How we think about ourselves and how God thinks about us is supposed to line up exactly. And any time it doesn't, we sin. That leads us to the fourth thing I think this passage does. It convicts us. It convicts us. It convicts us because when we read this passage, it's immediately clear to us, and it would have been clear to the original readers, I don't think we're doing that. I don't think we're doing that. Imagine if you were working somewhere, let's say you work at a taco restaurant, okay? We have lots of taco restaurants in Austin. Tacos for everything. Meat, eggs, and all kind of, you know, Chinese food, you get taco, everything you want in Austin. Let's say you work at a taco place, and somebody comes in and finds you, instead of making taco, you're making pancakes. And they say, uh, the sign says tacos. And you're like, yeah, but I feel like pancakes today. And everybody that lines up outside the door says, okay, I'd like um, two brisket tacos. Oh, no, we don't do tacos. We're doing pancakes. Now, If the boss comes and says, you're fired, you're fired, you're not not meant to be making pancakes, you're meant to be making tacos, we would think, well, yeah, they're not doing what they're called to do, but that's what happens every time we run away from what God has called us to be. And the people reading this and we and us could say, yeah, I, I don't think I look very much like God. I think I'm misrepresenting what God is in my life. If this is our fundamental calling to be an image bearer of God, to reflect what God looks like, I don't think I've done that. I know I haven't done that. I know you haven't done that. Moses writing this would have known, I haven't done that, you haven't done that, The world is full of chaos and warfare and disruption and curse and problems. So clearly we haven't ruled over the world the way God wanted us to because when he, so to speak, left us in charge, everything was good. And now everything is not good. There is slavery and murder and gossip and sibling rivalry and fighting and disrespect to parents and hitting each other and being angry and getting sinful in a dodgeball game. There's all kinds of things that happen, all of which, 
even down to the smallest thing, is us pulling that rail away. I don't want to be like you. You say to turn the other cheek. I say it's good to be competitive no matter what the cost. You say it's good to be forgiving. I say get what's yours is better. You say we should love you above all things. I say money seems pretty great. You say a gentle and quiet spirit is beautiful. I say having people like you on social media is pretty great. What are we doing? We're just pulling that rail away. So we read this passage. Be, be an image bearer of God. Reflect God. Do him the honor of showing creation that he is God and we represent him and we are ordering all things under his authority and as a display of his generosity. That, that is our goal in life is to reflect God. And every time we don't, we ought to be convicted. So just reading this, you realize I was made to be this, and many, many times I am not this. This passage convicts us, and it convicts us when we, we realize, I think, how little it bothers us that we're not doing what we are fundamentally called to do. We think of it like pancakes in a taco house. We think, well, it's not that bad. Everybody likes pancakes. But actually what's happening is we're giving away poison in a taco house. And outside, people are dying. And God's glory as the owner is being maligned. Because what he said to do was to give them food, metaphorically. And we're dishing out sin as poison. And when he comes in and says, I, I told you to serve you went your own way. It led to death. It maligns God. This isn't... The sign says God's taco house and people are dying. Don't you see how that, what that says about me? You're, you're wearing my uniform and you're killing people. You can't stop wearing my uniform. You're made in the image of God. You are God's representative on earth. But people are dying. So this passage convicts us. Last thing it does is it invites us. This passage invites us. Moses wrote Genesis. He wrote it when the people of Israel were in the the wilderness heading toward the promised land. He wrote it at a time when they would have been very aware this world is not representing God. We're not, and our enemies are not, and we are, if we're reading this rightly, we are very aware that Adam's line has failed. Adam was supposed to be this great image bearer and his children were supposed to reflect God after him and follow in his ways and the earth was supposed to be filled with little image bearers of God and I'm looking around at Egypt and Israel and Edom and Moab and I'm saying that is not happening. 
it's almost like it's the opposite of God. God's image bearers are doing the opposite of what he wants them to do. So it would cause them to look to the future and wonder, how, how can this train ever be put back on track? The Adam rail is woefully far away and off from its original. The Adam line, if I can use that analogy, the Adam line is way off track. Here's like the image of God direction, what God said about Adam and his children. And here's Adam. They're not even close. They're very different from each other. It's still a rail. It's still a train. They still have that calling, but they, they are not close. When and how will there be a new rail where we can start this over again? They would have longed for what we have been allowed to see in the New Testament with the coming of Jesus. Actually, Paul, Paul calls Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15 the last Adam. He calls him the last Adam. So he says there, there was a first Adam and there was a last Adam. He wasn't, he's not just the next Adam. He's the last one. Paul says in Colossians 3 that Jesus, listen to this word, is the image of the invisible God. So anybody that's reading this from our time frame would hear that word image and say, oh, I, I, wait, I know somebody. I know somebody who is that. I know a lot of people who are that but failed, but I know somebody who is that perfectly. Paul said Jesus is the image of the invisible God. John said that Jesus, the word of God, who reflected God perfectly, he, he, he became flesh, he became a man. So that he wasn't just like God up in heaven. He showed us what Adam was meant to be but was not, what we are not. He is Jesus, the perfect reflection of God. When you look at Jesus, you see what God is because Jesus is God, but he's also man. You see what God is in the form of a man. In the form of a human, you see what God is. You see the perfect image of God. Hebrews 2.17 says, Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect. So he was made like you, but in a way in which it could be seen, this is what it means to be perfectly like God. This is the new line. This is the new line. And the whole storyline of the Bible, when, when we read Genesis and we see you were made to be the image of God. You were made to rule over creation. You're made to be God's regent over this world that perfectly reflects God so that all creation says there is God's perfect reflection on this earth. And Adam and all of his children, including us, failed miserably. The line went wandering off into the woods. The train crashed until a new line was laid. And the new line was named Jesus Christ. And that new line was perfectly like God. It was the perfect reflection of God, exactly lined up in every way. The way God is loving, Jesus was loving. God is kind, Jesus was kind. God is holy, Jesus is holy. Jesus did everything as a man perfectly in a way that reflects God. So if you look in Jesus, as he would say, you see God. Perfectly lined up. There it stretches. Never even an inch apart. Never even separated in the smallest degree. There's no place on that track where what God is and what Jesus is is separated at all. 
And the really shocking thing is, Jesus comes to each broken child of Adam and says, would you like to join this line? You can't fix your own track, but you can jump from the old track and get on the new one. You can get off the old track, you can link yourself up to the new track, and you can begin being like Jesus, who is the image of God. Only because Jesus took the crash of that old track on himself, he bore the failure of all these worthless image bearers, cursing, blaspheming lumps of Play-Doh, Jesus took on himself. And he became the perfect image bearer that we can link ourselves up to by salvation. And for anyone who is a Christian, they can increasingly look like the one man who is the image of God. Now, what's the point of all this for this week and next week and when you're doing your school in the fall and when you're talking to your mom and she made you angry and you're talking to your torpy little brother and he made you angry and you're tempted to worry about how you look tomorrow because your hair isn't exactly right. What, what, what do you do with all this? The point is this. Who made you is the most foundational identity question you can ask. God made you. You failed as I have to live up to that. But Jesus is the image of God. And being linked up to him by his redemption and salvation, we'll talk more about that tomorrow, we can increasingly reflect God's image the way God made us to. Here's what I want you to be able to answer every time that thought comes to your mind. God made me. And if I'm a Christian, he remade me in the image of Jesus. He remade me. And my identity is lined up with the creation that God made and the recreation that God made in Jesus. So now who I am, who I actually am, is the image of God. And who I ought always to think of myself as being is the made and remade image of God if I am a Christian. And those things ought never to be separated from each other. Who you are because of who God says you are and who you think you are should always line up perfectly. And the most foundational thing in creation and again in Christ, if you are a Christian, is made by God. Made by God. It humbles us, it honors us, it convicts us, it invites us to see Jesus, made by God. Let's pray. You've been listening to a conference given for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865 694 4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.